On today's show, our guest is Scott Bretland, call sign Mez. Once again, I'm proud to represent the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force on the Go All In podcast. Our guest today has had an incredible aviation career, both in the Royal Australian Air Force and also as a civilian pilot. He's a qualified F-111 fighter pilot, a C-130 Hercules pilot, a King Air pilot, a flying instructor, a display pilot, and much more. Scott was all in on flying fast jets from the age of five when he first laid eyes on an F-111 at Ambly Air Force Base in Queensland. His mum recounts a really cute story. She says after the first time that he saw the jet, he declared that one day he would fly one. And sure enough, he did. Scott understood and committed himself to doing everything he could to achieve his goal. So you could say that he was all in from the age of five in his commitment to become an Air Force pilot. His methodical approach to learning, coupled with his deep desire to become a fighter pilot, are truly inspirational. I know you're going to learn a great deal from his approach to life, and you're going to absolutely love his stories of tearing a hole in the sky and a pig, especially down in the weeds. I'm excited he's here, so please help me in welcoming Scott Bretland, call sign Mez. Hey, are you totally committed? Are you playing full out? Are you all in? Hi, my name is Robert Brass, and this is the Go All In Podcast. Join me as we explore amazing stories of success, heartache, and absolute triumph by those who have gone all in. I'm glad you're here, so let's get to it and do whatever it takes to go all in and create the life of your dreams. G'day, Scott. Welcome to the show, mate. It's great to have you here. Rob, thanks very much, mate. Pleasure. All right. I like to start off all of my shows with a quick little get-to-know-you quiz. It helps us warm up a little bit. It calms us down. Maybe the friends and family listening in will learn something about you that they don't already know. This is in no particular order. It's pretty random. You ready? Just tell me first thing that comes to mind, okay? All right, far away. All right, cool, man. Do you prefer tail draggers or tricycle undercarriage planes? Tail draggers. Yeah, why? The challenge. Better? You like tap dancing on those pedals a bit more? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Cool, cool. Cardio or weights? Cardio. Early to rise or late to bed? Late to bed. Instructing or mentoring? Mentoring. Nice. Writing or public speaking? Latter, but I enjoy the former. Nice, nice. All right, I'm going to ask you some F111 questions here. Maritime strike sorties or close air support sorties? Uh, I prefer CAS. Nice, nice. Do you like up high in a pig at Mark II or down in the weeds in a TF Raider? Oh, down low. Yeah, every time? Yeah. <laughs> Last one. Do you prefer the big long concrete runway in a pig or a short little dodgy bush strip in a herc? Short dodgy strip in the herc. Nothing better than a little challenge in a short fielder, right? Yeah, it was pretty interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, nice one, mate. Thanks for sharing that with us. People come on over to the Go All In podcast to learn more about others that have gone all in. So if you could, please, Scott, could you please share with us your biggest Go All In story or stories and the lessons that you've learned from your commitment to success? Yeah, sure thing. Well, I guess the, the first one to kick off with, and probably chronologically, is my career in the, in the Air Force and in particular achieving becoming a fighter pilot, which is you know, something that I'd wanted to do from a very, very young age. I guess as young as I can remember, I always wanted to be a pilot. My mum joined the Air Force when I was, I think, four or five. And as soon as I sort of figured out what this Air Force thing was and what fighter jets were, I decided you know, that's really what I want to do. 
my mum tells me a story about when she her first posting was rough ambling. So we drive up there and we, we go in the gate and there's an F-111 sitting there at the, the Boeing hangar. And we drive past and I, I do remember looking at it and seeing this thing for the first time thinking, look at the size of that thing, first of all, because as a small kid, you know, seeing F-111, it's a big aircraft. I remember seeing it thinking, that thing is enormous. And we went around and had a bit of a drive around it and then jumped out of the car and had a look. We get back in the car and we're driving home and I said to my mum, you know, it's just kind of silence in the car apparently and I just pop up and said, I'm going to fly those one day. And she's like, yeah, right, no problems. Yeah, this is like five-year-old me, six-year-old me. Says, yeah, I'm going to fly those things. And from then it was really a, I guess, a single focus that I had throughout my youth and, and adolescence. I never wanted to do anything else and I was 100% committed to getting, achieving that goal through everything I could, I had at it, and which is not to say that I did things perfectly because if any of my school teachers ever saw this, they'd probably attest to that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> good enough, not good was my motto through high school, I guess, because I didn't enjoy it very much. But I still maintain that focus on becoming a RAF pilot and in particular becoming a fighter pilot. It was a challenge through, you know, not just getting through school, but when you get in the Air Force, you know, it's not, the pressure doesn't come off or, or in terms of the challenge doesn't diminish in any way. There's still a lot of things to do and each day is you know, quite challenging. I threw a few spanners in the works for myself along the way just to make it a little bit harder. But, you know, in the end, it all worked out and, and I got through and, yeah, I got the F-111 patch and became a fighter pilot or a strike pilot, as some of the uh, F-18 guys would say, because they feel a little bit challenged by our supremacy in the strike realm. <laughs> I'm discovering that as I talk to you folks, you raffies around the traps, you know, like it's, it's funny as an ex-infantry guy, you know, we don't really have that same sort of rivalry amongst each other. Kind yeah. Of interesting as well tell me you must have had an all-in commitment right from the get-go once you got accepted into the RAAF obviously you went in as a direct entry pilot right I did yeah and you were committed right from the start that hey I'm going to go and fly fast jets I'm not going to go and fly anything else that was the only thing that you were focused on yeah exactly I mean I have this weird obsession with the Boeing 707 so that was kind of my second place option I really wanted to fly yeah. the, notice the fighter thing didn't work out mm-hmm. but yeah, it was something that I always wanted and was pushing for right from the first day. And it's interesting because you would think that you get to, you know, officer training and pilots course and everyone would want to fly fighters. And I think most people did, but what most people said was not that they wanted to fly fighters. A lot of people wanted to fly transports and all that kind of thing. And I still can't quite figure out why that might have been. I think it might have been a confidence thing or people were afraid to put themselves out there. I guess I wasn't afraid to put myself out there as much as, you know, it was a bold call for me because, I mean, at, at that time I'd just had my daughter had just been born. So I'm, you know, 19 years old on pilot's course with a with a child and, you know, living off base and that kind of thing. So that was, you know, on a pittance compared to what pilots get paid these days too. So that, that was pretty challenging. But, yeah, I still committed myself to that whole way through and relentlessly pursued that. It's a really big barrier. I don't think most people know that have never been in the military. There's a lot of hurdles you have to jump through to actually be accepted into the military and then be accepted into an elite job like a pilot's job. It's just so competitive. It's very, very competitive. Now, I don't think that joining the infantry is as hard as you know trying to join up as a pilot and then particularly going through to the elite levels of aviation in the military as well. Tell me about the learning curve that you'd been on. That must have gone on for years. Yeah. I guess if I started at the point when, when you join the Air Force, you go and do officer training and I was fairly well equipped with officer training, having grown up in an Air Force family and, and seen what you know the Air Force involved. My parents were both enlisted in the, in the Air Force, so they were they were airmen. So I knew I knew a fair bit about that, and I did you know, Air Force cadets as a kid, and, and obviously read a lot and you know all that sort of stuff. So 
that was fine. But the learning curve when you get on pilot's course, that's where it just kind of kicks off. You know, every day there's something new. And, and the way they train is really interesting because it's, you know, you'll go and see something once, you'll get you know, shown it, you'll get talked through it, you get asked to do it. And then from there, that's it. You're expected to know how to do that particular task and you're expected to improve at it at a rate commensurate with your position in training. That can be a challenge for some people and I certainly found it a challenge myself because you have to get used to rehearsing sequences that you might not have done for two or three months. You're going to jump in the aircraft, you're expected to reproduce it almost flawlessly and be better at it than you were last time they saw you. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, get this, um, you get this progress through course where you're just kind of doing stuff every single day that you're really not getting a whole lot of hand-holding, you're just expected to get better and doing that under your own steam. So that's really where the learning curve comes in because it's not handheld learning in a sense. You've got to drive yourself and constantly be looking not only at what's coming up, but what have I done and how am I expected to do that? So coming up with patterns in terms of your learning to be able to deal with that challenge is really crucial in the early stages of your pilot training. And I think that I was extremely fortunate to have had some good instructors when I flew gliders as a teenager Mm -hmm. and also to... I guess, have an aptitude which was suited to it, I think, because I learned a lot about how I learn throughout, you know, the five or six years of of the intense pilot training continuum. Did the Air Force teach you how to learn? Did they give you like studying techniques or did you kind of bring that to bear yourself from just from what you learn in your life? They do spend a bit of time. I think they do a lot more these days. They did a little bit back then. We had a psychologist at 2FDS especially who would, you know, spend a bit of time with us offering us solutions on how to study. To be honest, I found that their methods that they were providing me weren't effective for me personally. I think for some people they would have been, and mostly that's for people who had trouble concentrating. Something I found which was really interesting when I finally got my head around it was that I would learn quite quickly, but I wouldn't realise, like I didn't realise at the time that I was learning fast, and I, I often felt very guilty going, oh, geez, I don't feel like I'm dedicating myself enough to this but then someone asked a question i could reproduce the information it was just like it came easy yeah look it came fairly easy and i think that that's because i was so interested in it that when i was reading something i wasn't sitting there going like i've got to read this i was sitting there being like give me more give me more give me more oh my god this is amazing look look at what i'm doing this is everything i've ever wanted to do and so it was just sticking really well and I was very fortunate that one of my best mates now who was on course with me, who was an ex F-111 navigator, and I took a lot of tips from him about how he learned. And it turned out that him and I learned very, very similarly and were able to assimilate the knowledge fairly fast. But what I got off him was the tips of how to condense things down so that, you know, you could essentially write yourself cheat sheets that you could study off that would kind of bring all of the knowledge back out. And so that was extremely helpful as well, getting that. So, And he'd been in the Air Force for 12 or so years at that point. So I guess in a way the Air Force did teach me that. I just had to pick it up through, you know, through a different way other than the, the deliberate mechanisms. Nice one. The go-all-in philosophy is one of commitment at the outset. And I find when I talk to people that find themselves in a flow state like you're describing there, just coming easy, you can kind of reproduce the answers and you kind of feel guilty because it's so easy compared to everybody else. I find that's because it's aligned your attitude, your mentality and everything is aligned to exactly what it is that you want to do. It's exactly what you believe. It's like your core values are kind of being reproduced in the exterior world and it's lining up perfectly. Did it feel like that for you? Because ever since you were a little tacker running around, all you wanted to do was go and fly fast jets and there you were learning to do it. Did it feel like you were in a flow state like that? Yeah, definitely. And I, and I, I like that you brought that up because, you know, I, I think I get the whole flow state type of thing and I've seen it in a lot of different areas of work that I've done both in the Air Force and outside. And that's most certainly 
you know, the way I feel like it went. You could go to work and you goof around with the guys and then you just sit down and everything just kind of comes together mm-hmm. and you can get what you need to get done and then off you go. A lot of the challenges, honestly, were dealing with being in an environment which is so competitive and people were really stressed out. That was probably the hardest thing. I mean, there were, I probably shouldn't say it, there were fights erupted in my classroom, not between me, but <laughs> a couple of people, you know, they, yeah, well. the tension was there and it, it was a difficult environment. And being outside of hours, you know, you also lose a bit of the connection with the people that you're working with. And maybe they didn't quite understand me as well as I didn't understand them that well. And, you know, you'd sometimes go into class and just think, these people are all really strung out and I don't quite get it. And that was just me sort of still coming to grips with, well, I'm finding this relatively easy compared to them, but you don't really know because it's still stressful. It's not to say that you, you go, oh, this is walk in the park. I had heaps of challenges through pilot's course and flights that didn't go well and, you know, I didn't fail anything, thankfully, on pilot's course, but I started failing stuff after that. And, you know, that's a difficult thing to get used to. And I guess it added a lot of tension to the room. And I was just, yeah, fortunate to be able to get into that mindset and have it really click and, as you said, align with those values and be able to then apply myself in a way that I could sort of shield myself from the interruptions when I was studying. Nice, nice. They're really valuable lessons, mate. Thank you for sharing that with the audience. Tell me, when you started to come to the end of your basic flying training and you obviously put your hand up for fighter jets, when did you realise that was going to pay off for you? Very late in the piece, let's say. On the postings night, the guys played a, a pretty neat trick on me where they made me... It was not long after the, the F-111 had, had the wheel fall off, right? And so I'm on course with my mate Bird, who's now flying Growlers, but he was a an F-111 navigator, so he's doing pilot's course. And, you know, so this F-111's lost its wheel and they decide as this postings night gag, they're going to say to Bird, hey, you know, this F-111's lost its wheel. The F-111 navigator's got to help him find it and it's out in the middle of the oval in the dark. And they said, but we can't send you on your own because you'll get lonely, so we're sending Mez with you. Cause, you know, that's you guys are joined at the hip. So they send us out there to like run out and grab this tyre, middle of the night, but it's also been pouring rain in Perth for the last three or four days, so the ovals is covered in mud. So here's Bird and I in our mess kit, and of course, he's a little bit older and a little bit bigger. So I am pipped him at the post out in the middle of the oval trying to find this tyre in the dark, found this tyre, and then spent the next half an hour trying to get back to the, the mess with that Bird intercept. <laughs> and I'm covered in mud, and, but I'm victorious. I've got this tyre in my arms. And then they decide to put up on the board, they go, you're going to King Air 350s. And I was like... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, that wasn't funny. <laughs> yeah, so I, I managed to make us keep a smile going for a little while, but I was sitting there kind of thinking, "Geez, I don't know what I did wrong." Like, the scores were awesome, and you know, the feedback we got was great. It's like, what happened here? And they left it till everyone else got their postings, and then the bosses kind of got up and going, "Yeah, thanks, guys. It's been a great night. You know, be good. See you all tomorrow." And they kind of do the it's winding up, and it's like, "Oh, wait, wait, no, just just kidding. Um, you know, Mez, jump up, we're going fighters." So, <laughs> bit of an anticlimax at the end, and. It's funny that a lot of, you know, my progress was very anticlimactic a lot of the time through through my training, even to when I, I became a fighter pilot, because that, that particular mission wasn't, you know, a grad sortie in the typical sense. It was done after conversions had officially finished on the F-111 and we had restrictions like we couldn't night fly out of Tyndall at the time and we were launching out of Tyndall, so we had to come up with this grand plan of leaving in the day, you know, sun going down, it turning into a night mission and then recovering to Darwin and it was just, yeah, cool. so the whole thing was very much like, non-standard but yeah I didn't find out till right at the end and I was always hopeful but you never really know you don't really know until they they sort of say so and even then all you know is I've got a chance at it so I've still yeah. got to work well. and tell me about moving from a PC9 into a Hawk was it different jumping out of something with a propeller to something with a lot more thrust or was it just a natural progression for you no it's a pretty big jump that first flight the biggest thing I noticed straight away is the momentum of the jet even when you're taxiing it 
Also, in a fighter, you're sitting in a different position to what you are in most other airplanes. So instead of sitting like back towards the main wheels, you're at the front over this nose wheel. So the first mm-hmm. thing I noticed as I start steering, it feels like you're kind of out on a beam getting flung around going, oh, this feels a little bit strange. And then you can imagine that's amplified again in the F-111 because of how yeah. long the wheelbase is. Yeah. So, yeah, that was pretty interesting. The momentum and that sort of stuff, the spool-up time in the engine is a lot higher in a Hawk than you get in a, in a PC-9. So that was a pretty big jump. You come to grips with it pretty quickly. I mean, you go solo in, I think it's five flights. really isn't that much. You kind of have no idea still, I guess. When I look back, I I just had no idea. (laughs) (laughs) You know, as a private pilot, the airplanes that I fly are so damn simple. You know what I mean? It's got a yoke and it's got a throttle and it's got some pedals and that's it. You know, like very, very simple. How did you go from flying a PC-9, which is a fairly sophisticated machine, but it's still fairly simple when you look at the controls, to something with a HOTAS? Luckily, the HOTAS stuff comes a bit later. So you're able to fly the aircraft effectively in the domestic context by then. And you're basically doing PC-9 stuff to start with anyway. It's just a little bit more buttons. So you're not really touching the HOTAS too much. But when you do jump to the HOTAS, as someone who plays computer games and all that kind of thing, I didn't find it too bad. But I know that for people who don't do that kind of thing, you know, they don't Xbox or whatever else like that, that's a little bit of a, a tougher issue to get around. Not so much now. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a young man or woman who goes through that process who doesn't have some experience with that kind of you know, hand mm-hmm. machine interface type experience. Yeah, I always find it really interesting. Like Airplanes are such sophisticated, complex machines, and even at the simplest versions of them, like I fly as a private pilot, they're still fairly complex machines, and the military has a really great way of teaching you things incrementally and leveling you up incrementally and doing that really well. Have you found that that kind of has translated into professional life outside of the military as well, using that incremental learning system? Yeah, definitely. Both in the context of my aviation work and also my business work. So, you know, you say you're flying private aircraft. I do too. Like, I guess I consider myself a GA pilot now and I have been for a very long time. I flew gliders back before I joined the RAF and then I also did glider towing when I was on the F-111. So, I was flying Piper Pawnees, you know, with which have got hardly anything in them. Uh, <laughs> and what the great thing was that you kind of develop this ability, I think you develop an ability to self-teach in a very logical way. Mm-hmm. So I get tasks, if they're complicated, I break it down and then go, okay, what do I need to do to get from the start line to the finish line? And I guess it's teaching you in a way like project management, really. You learn how to break something down and then and follow it through and, and all the processes of making sure that you're analysing what's going on and where you're at and, and reassessing and then replanning if you need to. Yeah, fantastic. So tell me about the Hawk training. Was it hard? Was it easy? You learn to fly the aeroplane and they start putting you in more complex situations and now you're yeah. mucking around with weapons and that type of thing. What, what, what was it like? Well, look, the first half of Hawk training I found really tough. And the reason why was that I had my first sortie fail uh, when I was on the Hawk and I, I took it really hard. I needed my mate Bird to come and sit me down and just go, hey, mate, like this happens and, you know, talk me through the process and, and how to overcome that, that challenge because I hit the first time where I've gone, I'm not doing awesome here and I can't quite figure out why. Mm-hmm. Um, it largely, I think, in the end was just a mental issue in terms of, you know, how I was coping. At the time, my wife was pregnant with our second child, so I'm there on, you know, hawk conversion. I'm only, I think it was 21 at the time. Oh, my gosh, so much going on, man. Yeah, I, I had a lot going on and then... Yeah. That sortie fail happened. I didn't quite know how to dig myself out of it. But I had good friends around who helped me do that. And, yeah, I managed to sort of, you know, claw my way through. The hardest stuff we did was things like night formation. So you go out there unaided, (laughs) so no night vision goggles, and you fly close formation at night, which sounds like madness, and and it kind of is. So that that was really tricky because you – 
you know, the RAF throws these challenges at you. And the first time you're flying in an environment where, you know, you don't have very good depth perception at night, almost none. And you're trying to perceive depth off another aircraft in close formation, which is, yeah, I'm proud to have done it because it it's an amazing sort of thing. But, yeah, it's tough. So the first half was, was really hard. The second half, hard but for a different reason, I guess. I moved into a world where they give you, I guess, less quarter in terms of their training mentality. What I mean by that is they don't tolerate errors as well. You know, in a training environment, they're quite supportive, relatively um, supportive if you make a mistake. In the operational training environment, which was, what, 76 water mods, you make a mistake and it's a fail. It's pretty clear cut. And it doesn't mean that people, there's no value attached to that in terms of you're less a human. It's nothing like that. But it is very, nope, you didn't meet the standard, that's a zero. Let's figure out what we need to do to get you to the standard. But the sympathy level is non-existent. Not there. <laughs> that's how it goes. And for a good reason, you know, they're teaching you that when you're flying an operational jet, if you get stuff wrong, the result is potentially death yeah. uh, of your formation members, that kind of stuff. So they're trying to get into you the understanding that you can't afford to lapse. And when you do lapse, there needs to be consequences because you need to have this fear of consequence. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about you know, releasing weapons, for example, the parameters that they put on that, they're hard and fast. There's no, you know, I've seen hard tapes of guys doing you know, weapon passes where the bomb comes off like right on the minimum safe release height. Mm-hmm. And the response of the instructors is like, yep, it was a safe pass. And then they move on. And that's a hard mindset to get into because you think, oh, my God, like you're barreling down the hill and your rate of descent is, you know, thousands of feet a minute. So the time frame between a safe pass and an unsafe pass is... A nanosecond. Yeah, it's immeasurable from a human <laughs> frame of reference at the time. But all they care about is like, yep, you're on this side of the line, you're in, and they might throw a comment out there about, you probably should have got the weapon off a little bit sooner than that. And if your parameters were better, you would have, but they don't make a big deal of, you know, there's no like, Oh, you're on the line. So therefore we need to treat it like you failed. It's like, Nope, it's safe. You're good. You know, bear in mind, you do that operationally and you may find yourself in a world. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting system to go through and, and to get your head around um, how it all works. Nice one. So you, you made your way out of there, out of 76 squadron, you get posted to, did you know you were going to F-111s? No, I actually didn't. I spent an extra six months at 76. So when I finished conversion, well, there's two of us who didn't go straight to a conversion because there wasn't enough. Um, no mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and that was myself and the other guy were kind of the worst two on, they just graded it. And they're like the top six off you go. And then yeah. the bottom two, which was me and another guy, we, we hung around. Did they go to F-18 or did they go to F-11 as well? A couple of guys went to F-11s and a couple of guys went to f 18 So, the way that they divvied that out wasn't necessarily, you know, top guys go to hornets, bottom guys go to pigs or anything like that. They're a little bit more um, pragmatic about it because they needed people with different skill sets across the board. So when they would do postings, they would all sit down, get all the instructors in the room and go, right, what's this person's temperament? What are their skills? Where are their strengths? And what does the service need right now? Mm-hmm. So with mine, I'd spent six months in ops flight, flying around doing close air support, maritime strike, you know, fleet support missions the whole gamut of stuff, getting shot down, you know, simulated shot down by F-18s and things. And in the end, the actual, the OC of the wing came and saw me, which is pretty, you know, unheard of. They don't normally care. He's, this guy's a, you know, I think he was a group captain at the time. You know, captain says, says, right, Mez, I've got a problem. <laughs> I said, what's your problem, sir? <laughs> he goes, my problem is, is that all your instructors think you should go to Hornets and you want to go to Hornets. He said, but the problem I have is I need someone to go to F-1 levels. And he had actually, he was a little bit sneaky about it. He'd been coming down to the unit for, you know, a couple of months prior and he'd fly with me occasionally. He'd go, I'm going to jump in your back seat and watch. And, you know, in hindsight, I know what he was doing. He was trying to figure out where I fit and what mm-hmm. I was doing. So he said, you know, he's rung me up. And I think it was a Saturday even that he rung me and just said, 
you know, I need someone to go to F11s. I think that you're, you know, you're well and truly cut out for Hornets. It's not an issue. It's just I need someone who can go and pass because the course prior to the, the one I ended up on, they lost two of the pilots um, who didn't make it through. So they were now short of pilots up until retirement. Mm-hmm. So he said, I can't send someone who's at risk to me in terms of training. I need, need someone who's going to pass, and I, and I reckon you're that guy. He said, man, Super Hornet's coming. It's all looking pretty good. And I'm like, oh, okay, uh, let me have a think. And I had a chat to Bird, and funnily enough, Bird and I, were he was going with pigs, so he's like, yeah, man, come on. It's going to be great. <laughs> and so I went, look, you know, it'll be a good experience. Obviously, at that time, I changed my mind. I didn't want to be an F-11 pilot. I wanted to be an F-18 pilot. But I thought, you know, I, I can go and do this and, and have a good tilt to it. And I talked to a couple of instructors there, and um, one guy named Marty Hewitt, who ended up being an excellent mentor for me all the way through. And, you know, they said, it's going to be great. Come up and have a crack at it. So I did. So I threw my hat in the ring and said, yep, I'll go. And tell me, what did it feel like when you strapped that jet to yourself for the first time? Must have been very, very different. And it's a very big progression from where you were. Yeah, it was a huge jump. Like you, mm. it's a huge jump in a couple of ways. You're actually stepping up in terms of the size and the speed and, and all that kind of stuff. But you're stepping back in terms of the technology you've got. Yeah. You've from a yeah. digital jet with MFDs and a head-up display and all that kind of stuff. And now they're throwing you in an airplane that doesn't have any of that. And I can tell you right now that learning things like landing the airplane, you're applying some skills there that you've got to have raw pilot skill in the F-11 because you don't telling you where the jet's going. You've just got to figure it out by eyeballing it. Yeah. So that was pretty interesting, you know. And I remember Marty Hewitt, actually, who I mentioned before, on one flight, you know, we were a few flights in doing some formation. You know, he took over from me and he's like, okay, mate, so he's in the right seat. He goes, you know, take me over. He said, just have a look at the jet next to you and I'm flying next to an F-11. I'm like, yep. And I thought I was going to get some lesson about, you know, up forward in, this is how you do form, you know, too much movement, whatever. And he's like, you're flying formation with an F-111. You're in an F-111. He goes, just take that in for a second. I was like, okay. And unfortunately, I didn't really take it in much at the time because I was kind of just like, dude, I'm just trying to fly next to this guy and I'm finding it reasonably challenging because it is, you know, it's a bit different in the flight controls in, in that compared to all. So, yeah, he let me sit there and look for a few seconds and then hand it back over and went back into it. So, yeah, that was one of the other challenges is, being able to kind of, you're in the moment, but also sometimes being able to zoom out and look at what you're doing because I think that that's important to give you context on where you are in your life is go, hey, I'm doing this. And I regret not doing that a little bit more on the pig, but, you know, that's young guy's game and that's, I guess, what the Air Force wants is you're not to spend too much time thinking about it. They just want you to do it. Yeah, I look back at some of the experiences that I had in my military career and exactly the same thing. You look at some of the things that you've done now and you go, man, that was like epic. I can't yeah. believe that I did that. And at the time, you're kind of like, oh, whatever, man, you know, where's the parachute? I'll strap it on, let's go. Where would, what's the yeah. foreign DZ we're jumping into? Or where's the map? What does it look like? Whatever. Yeah. When you look back at it, you're like, that was pretty cool, man. I took all the training and all the skill that you had and all the people that came together to make that work. It's pretty awesome. So I think it's really important to stop and smell the roses every now and then as well. But as a young bloke, you don't really know to do that, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's hard to know that that's an important thing. All right. I want to, I want to ask you some Navy related questions for the people listening that don't know my job in the Navy used to be as a, what was called a combat systems operator. I used to be on a a guided missile frigate in the Australian Navy and uh, we used to operate the radar sonar electronic warfare. And my specialty was anti-air warfare. If it flies, it dies. That's what we would say. We'd ask the RAF to come out all the time and shoot them out of the sky. It's kind of fun. There's a little bit of inner service rivalry going on there but I always used to get pretty excited when the F-111s would come out on task and we would practice maritime strike missions with us and one of the questions I always 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 wanted to ask a pig pilot was this because 
we would watch you guys on the radar from a long way away and you'd be up at altitude, you know, up in the flight levels, 25, 30,000 feet. And then suddenly you guys would roll in onto us and get a harpoon shot off at maximum range and then fly a missile profile at us. But I was always really fascinated that you went from 25, 30,000 feet and you rolled in and you'd come over the bow of the ship at like 50 feet at as fast as humanly possible. I don't know how fast you were going. How fast do you go when you go in front of a ship like that? Oh, you usually try to do about 0. 0.9, 0. 0.95 just to... Almost uh, supersonic, right? Yeah, I can remember these big green jets screaming in at us at a gazillion miles an hour like that. What, what's the transition in your mind as the commander of an aeroplane like that rolling in from the flight levels, you know, relatively kind of benign up at altitude on autopilot to down right on the deck, you know, and coming at us with a train following radar. What's that like in your headspace, that transition? You're always working. So even when you're up high, you're running a lot of, you know, the tactical situation is, is developing. So what you're getting is information from your maritime patrol assets at that point. So you're trying to figure out, okay, what's the ship doing? Where's it going? You know, without going into details, harpoons, a bit of an interesting weapon and it takes some management. So you're pretty much running all of that stuff. The hands and feet, you know, it's not to say it gets ho-hum because it's not and it's still really dangerous, but you, you kind of get to that point and you go, okay, so we're going from high level and we're, we're now going down to low level. The manoeuvre in terms of getting the aircraft down there is a bucket of fun because you'll usually do the old, you know, idle, roll the thing off the back, pull three or four G to get it, you know, 40-odd nose down, maybe more, speed break out as you roll it back around. Your rate of descent is just something that most pilots will never see. <laughs> How quickly do you get? Because I can remember sitting at a radar, seeing you guys at... 25, 30,000 feet, and then suddenly you're like on the deck. Oh, it'll be less than... It's yes, deep. incredibly fast. What about your ears, man? Don't your ears pop out when you're doing that? Well, the worst part of the F-11 is that being so old, um, the pressurization's not great in it. And, yeah. and also, you know, the Americans, you know, God love them, have designed this aeroplane that the priority for the air conditioning is the avionics. So as soon oh. as the airplane out of the engines <laughs> drops off, the cabin just is like, sorry, guys, no air for you. The oh. cabin pressurizes. So you can actually end up in situations where you go from 20, 30,000 feet with a cabin out of six or 7,000 and it'll instantly just go right up to whatever altitude you're at if you go to idle. And what we would do though is if it did that, you just leave it at idle and then descend down and, and just... And you just catch up when you get you know, down there in a minute anyway. Yeah, and you get really good at that. I mean, you, you Valsalva and you manoeuvre and stuff works really well. It has to in those kind of airplanes because the amount of times you end up depressurizing and repressurizing yourself in the F1 level was... Uh, no. How do you do that Valsalva when you've got the mask over your face and you've got your hands on the controls and the throttle? Well, most people can do it without having to actually hold their nose so they can just yep. sort of move the jaw. And, and you get it. And it does it, yeah. So sometimes if you need to do that, you just take your hand off and squeeze the bridge of your mask and that would actually achieve the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And so tell me, you roll in at down the hill there at a gazillion miles an hour at, at 400,000 feet per minute before you hit the deck, pull out. And now, do you click on the terrain following radar when you're on the water like that or are you hand flying it at low level? Depends on what you're trying to do. So if you're, you know, F-11 tactics are well old school now, so it's not a problem talking about those. Sometimes you would run in with the TFR running if you wanted to attract some attention because, you know, we didn't always come down the snot locker. We'd send aircraft at different parts of the compass, so to speak, to launch an attack if you wanted to be successful. We could see all of them when you guys came at all different directions. That tactic never worked. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's right. But you... (laughs) Well, so you didn't see all of us then. All right, cool. There are no ones you don't know, right? Yeah. Yeah, we would do some interesting stuff like profiles out of, if we're launching you know, off the coast, sometimes you would fly a civilian aircraft transponder code and civilian aircraft route and stuff like that, get low level, and then you just don't turn anything on. So you could actually fly out without the attack radar on, without the TFR on, without any of that sort of stuff going so that you, 
you're as hard to see as possible. And if you're getting down at certain altitudes, which you probably know about, you, you know, things are really hard to pick up. Mm-hmm. So we, we would come down and sometimes you have the TFR on and, and let it fly you. Other times you would just hand fly. So if you're hand flying down there at 100 feet, your mission cross-check time, which is the time that the pilot can spend doing stuff other than just not hitting the water, mm-hmm. is fairly low. So the navigator is obviously, you know, they're critical all the time, but you know, you're relying on them to do all of the, the thinking for you in terms of they would just feed you information, you'd ask for it. So you're kind of just staring out the front going, you know, watching. how's the TOT looking? And they're like, yeah, it's good. And you're like, okay, cool. Or if you're off, you then got to do some mental maths on how to get your TOTs right because employing weapons a lot of time is really about timing. It's putting mm-hmm. yourself in the right space at the right time because, you know, you don't want weapons to be arriving at different times on something like a maritime strike mission because it's the best chance of saturating a defense system is to get everything there at the same time. Tell me about what happens when you come up on a warship, you come over because when a jet is low on the horizon, and I've seen it many times from an ops perspective, you know, looking at a radar, looking at EW, and then also just standing outside when I'm not on watch, watching the jet scream in at you. The horizon is, uh, you know, 20 miles away and you guys cover that ground in no time at all. What does it feel like when you eyeball the ship and then it flashes past you nearly at supersonic speed like that? You go, oh, there it was. Yeah, pretty much. So, you know, warships are amazing because they've got such a big presence in the ocean. And mm-hmm. especially with those exercises, a lot of time there might only be one ship out there in the middle of nowhere. And, and sometimes it's, you know, if you don't have a radar lock on it for whatever reason, this would happen in the Hawk where you're just out there kind of going, well, I know where the Zulu Zulu was, but where is the thing now? And you're like, oh, there it is over there. Yeah. And then you kind of beeline over towards it and it's there and gone in no time. Uh, in the Pig, we're covering, we're doing 10 miles a minute most of the time mm-hmm. around and that's, you know, a phenomenal speed, really. It's all an ass, man. Yeah, everything's just whizzing by. And as you get into the boat, you just, you're kind of going, all right, there's all the masts. I'm not going to hit it. Sweet. <laughs> Over the top of you. <laughs> I always wondered what you were thinking when you were coming in so low and so fast. There's the mast. I'm not going to hit it. That's, there you go. You've answered my question. Up. It's like, yep, I'm not going to hit it. I'm good. <laughs> I remember in 1997, it might have been a little bit before you went in the RAF in 1997, where? No, I was in high school. You are in high school. I'm showing my age a little bit here. I was in the Navy in 1997. We are on an exercise called Tandem Thrust. And we were just up near Shoalwater Bay and the exercise was about to kick off. And there was a giant cyclone developing, tropical cyclone, Justin. And at the time, it was the biggest cyclone ever recorded in history. And it was developing off the east coast of Australia. But before it turned into this giant Category 5 thing and we went and did all the search and rescues, we were going to go up against an American carrier group. And the Yanks came down from Guam and they tracked across the north part of PNG and they came down the eastern side of PNG. And I can remember distinctly as the exercise was kicking off, the F-111s going out there, getting inside of the AAW screen of their destroyers and getting inside of their cap and getting some shots off on the carrier. It was pretty epic. I was really like so glad that you guys were on our side and despite all of their assets and all of their fanciness and their technology at the time, we still got inside of them with that old school jet. Did you ever go up against a big fat juicy target like an aircraft carrier? No, I didn't. We had one exercise where we had one on there, but it, that was kind of, no. <laughs> no, don't go near that thing. <laughs> yeah, that's because we, we floated the idea and we were told yeah, that's not happening. So look, it's the airplane itself was extremely capable in the strike role. I mean, for people who never flew it and never saw 
what it could really do. Um, I think there was a lot of, especially, you know, the Hornet community, there was people who were like, ah, oh, it's a piece of crap. You know, we don't need it. We don't, we don't need what it does. It's a government's decision, obviously, what capability we need. But the capability the F111 provided was phenomenal. You're talking about, especially in the last 10 years of its life and maybe a little bit before that, the air war had moved from being down in the weeds like Vietnam era to mm. up being a mid-level war. Everyone's running around with jammers and long-range, you know, BBR missiles and all this kind of stuff. And we ended up in a position where all of a sudden F-111 is the only player in the game that's down on a deck. Mm-hmm. And, you know, modern radars, as good as they are, still don't look down very well. You know, the ground is a pretty annoying thing for a radar. It doesn't look through that really well. Mm-hmm. You're also talking about an, an aircraft in the F-111 that has phenomenal range and speed. So in exercises we would do with the F-18, if, if the gloves were off in terms of we didn't have the constraints on where we could fly, and this is probably where you saw it with a carrier, you don't have constraints on where you can go. That aircraft can cause a lot of havoc just by merely being there because you can't ignore it (laughs) you've got to do something about it and you know with something like a carrier i can see how you potentially be able to cause them some issues and well like i said before if you fly your profiles deliberately and you 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 stick through what it is you're trying to do and how you want to do it you can still cause a headache for um, for even the most modern warfighting systems even when the jet was retired Mm -hmm. so the relevance of it i think probably decreased at some point but then came back up it wasn't a capability issue and especially because it was capable of being upgraded it just was never done you know, we could have put a newer pot on it. We could have put um, newer countermeasures and all sorts of you know, weird and wonderful things. And it still had you know, the AGM 142 when we retired, which is an incredible weapon in terms of its range and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, yeah it was a pretty big stick. What was, what's the most number of ordnance you got on a target like live fire? Uh, what did, did I do? drop a full load? No, I, I flew in formation with an aircraft that did, which was cool to watch. So I dropped 12 Mark 82s in a stick. Wow. The Bradshaw Air Weapons range, which is phenomenal to watch. And in a lot of ways, I'm kind of glad I wasn't in that jet because it looked pretty uncomfortable flying it around. Yeah. You know, with that kind of payload on it, the thing is plug. So, yeah, that was that was pretty cool to see. But, no, the most I did was I think I did two simultaneous at, at once and lots of single weapon passes and that kind of stuff. I mean, high explosive ordnance didn't come up all that often. So, right. you know, when it did, you, you tried to share the love a little bit around the squadron server and got a bomb or two. Nice one. Nice one. I'm, I'm going to ask a question that many listeners won't know. There was a really interesting time not so long ago that an RAAF-111 sank a North Korean drug smuggling ship. Yeah. Tell us yeah. a little bit about that. The two navigators who guided those weapons on were both instructors on my F-111 conversion, Romers and Midi, their names, and like both really wonderful guys. And it was just phenomenal to see the... Uh, I guess if people don't know the story, it's basically North Korean drug ships back in the, uh, the Howard government. This thing came down, uh, was intercepted by, I think, the AFP and the Navy. So they've basically taken possession of this ship and the government's going, what, what do we do with it? Uh, I think John Howard's on a percentage. Let's blow it up. It was like, this is what's <laughs> going to happen. So it was towed out off the coast and um, a couple of F-11s came in and did a profile that we called the Frog and they dropped a couple of Paveway 3 GBU-24, so 2,000-pound bombs. Beautiful. Uh, end of it and they absolutely nailed it and it was destroyed comprehensively right then and there so you know it's an unopposed target and all that kind of stuff but it was a really good demonstration of the fact that the f-111 was very capable at dropping and that's a laser guided bomb when you think about it on a ship with a laser guided bomb the way that those things guide themselves they're not it's not the greatest weapon for that job paveway Mm -hmm. three did a pretty neat job of it it was an interesting political statement to have made and it was but it was a great demonstration of you know the aircraft doing its thing especially with a simultaneous pairs attack they're not easy to do an aircraft like the F-11. So. I can remember seeing that happen and, and watching that happen. And my initial thought, and even today, it's kind of funny. I thought, well, that'll learn you. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I'm pretty sure that taught him a lesson. <laughs> that, 
won't do that again, will you? Yeah, we'll send the Air Force after you type thing. It's, it's pretty cool. So your career in the F-111 was a little bit short-lived and you moved on to Herx, which is a very, very close and personal friend of mine as a paratrooper. Tell me about flying Hercules. You moved from two engines in a, in a jet to four engines in a transport plane. It's a very, very capable machine. Must have been a lot of fun to fly as well. Mate, I had an absolute fat old time on the Herc. Um, I can say that it was my favourite aircraft to fly. Cool. Um, and the reason is, is kind of varied. One, it's because there's your crew that you're working with. Like you're working with a party of people and you know, and getting the job done and getting the aircraft in and out of the places that we used to take it and um, doing the missions we would do. I still look back and think, I'm pretty sure the public doesn't know how capable that aircraft was and what it would do. It was an amazing machine. So being a part of that was great. And just, you know, four-engine aeroplane flying around in a big old, you know, four-engine <laughs> prop. I mean, they, they don't Is really... Comfortable? Yeah, well, they don't exist these days apart from the Herc, really. Like, that's in yeah. the P3. You know, they're, they're not a very common thing. So four-engine turboprop aeroplane is pretty special. But, yeah, look, the Herc was, was great. As a kid, with my parents being in the RAF, we used to travel around every now and again on them. And so when I did my first flight in, in the Herc, I was flying with a, a guy named Boner, who's a really great mate of mine um, now, who's my instructor. I remember taxiing out. And, you know, we've done a few scenes and stuff, but we, we take off and... So I get airborne and I looked out to the wing and I see these you know, two engines kind of like blah, blah, bouncing around and just the aeroplane was so much nicer than the sim. And I look back at, at Boner and he's got this massive smile on his face and I think I must have had one too. And I just was like, how good is this? And he's like, I know, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> F-11, I jumped in this thing just like, this is the best. And then we went out and did some low flying and I made an absolute meal of it because it's just so much bigger and lots of momentum and you, you can't turn it like you can in F-11. So, um, but it was great. Absolutely loved her. Fantastic to fly. I remember when my mum joined the Air Force, she went over to recruit training on a Herc. And I then flew that aircraft, which was the first Herc I'd ever seen back when I was you know, four years old. Cool. I flew that aircraft when I was on the, on the Herc. And I've got a photo of my mum and, and myself and my brothers standing next to it. And then you know, there's me flying the thing. We flew it into Malaysia one time. And I just had that moment of like, man, you know, four-year-old me was just in awe of this thing. And then now here I am flying it. And it's, you know, it's like your old man's shovel, right? It's had three different handles and two different heads. It's still the same shovel. So it's kind of like that. But you, you know that it's still in its soul. It's still the same airplane. Yeah, it's fantastic, man. That's a really nice story. Did you ever do any um, airborne stuff? With uh, like SAS and that kind of thing? Toss some paratroopers out the back. Yeah, did um, got to do some halo jumps. So that's interesting, like depressurizing the airplane up at high level. Yeah, did a bit of para. Uh, I went on a red flag, which was really cool, and got to do like the escape and evasion thing as well myself, which was um, was an interesting, <laughs> interesting experience. Doing the Rafi doing the infantry thing, gosh, that's uh, a very interesting experience. Running through the desert in the middle of the night, and it I turns bet. out it's pretty cold in the desert in the middle. Of the yeah, night. really cold. Yeah, yeah. I was just wondering in the airborne stuff, you ever tack fly to a target with a bunch of static line guys in the back? No, not any static line stuff myself. I did most of my tactical work as the, the third pilot, I guess. So in the spec ops world, we used to carry three pilots. Mm-hmm. To one is like, I guess, in a, you call it an observer, but their job is to, I guess, provide big picture of situational awareness on the, the tactical radios to run some of the countermeasure systems and just generally be uh, you know, another body for tasks that are needed. So those ones were doing lots of air land, you know, landing and pushing yep. people out the back. And we did a bit of para, but not, not a massive amount. And yeah, I never did static personally. The reason I ask is I can remember many times being stuck in the back of a plane, you know, and there's a whole company of troops in there and you're all sitting on each other's laps with all the equipment. And it's like, eight, oh man, it's 859 degrees in the back there. You're busting to go to the bathroom. And there's some guy in the front of the plane pulling like what feels like 15 Gs to try and get into a target at a thousand. Dude, nobody's shooting at us, man. Why are you pulling so many? And, 
I've never been so air sick in my life because you don't sit fore and aft, you sit sideways, as you know. And when you're uncomfortable and you're hot, the only, I think in some ways the RAF like conspires with the army to make it as uncomfortable as possible to get the paratroopers out of the back of the plane because all you want to do is get out of that plane. You're just helping build the character. It works, man. It worked every time. Let me tell you, it worked a treat every time. So that's kind of cool. Thank you for sharing that with us. It's kind of a lot of fun to talk about. <laughs> That's really cool. Tell me what about your transition out of the RAAF into the civilian world? It must have been a big thing for you. Was it difficult? Was it easy? Do you miss it still? I guess the miss it bit, um, you know, it's like that line from Office Space. If you're missing a lot of work, can't say they're missing it. Um, yeah. I miss bits of it. I miss the flying for sure. I miss the camaraderie a lot. I don't miss the BS. Um, Defence, by its very nature, needs to have a lot of processes and, you know, bureaucracy built into it, which is fine. but. I guess everyone gets to a point where they like, maybe think I've had enough of that now and yeah. I want to do something different. Um, my transition out was a bit of a, I guess you could call it a soft transition out. So at the end of my career as a pilot, I actually transitioned over to become a legal officer trainee. So I spent about a year as a legal officer trainee doing my law degree, working in defence legal. And I decided at the end of that, that it really wasn't where I could see myself being, mostly because the, the work was awesome. Uh, the people I worked with in defence legal were phenomenal, some excellent lawyers and just great people, great officers. Mm -hmm. And I would love to have stayed working with them. But the plan for me was to go be demoted because I had to be demoted because of this, there's actually a statutory scheme which covers legal officers, which separates them from the rest of the officer scheme. So yeah, right. I would have had to have been demoted, take a massive pay cut, you know, go back to the start effectively. And, and I just thought, wow, you know, I'm 14 years into my career. I'm... By the time I finish my law degree, I'm going to have a long service medal. I'm going to be going back to square yeah. one. Um, I just don't know if I've got it in me. And it's not because it's not a worthy job or anything like that. It's just more, you know, as you get older, you, you learn a lot more and you feel like you've, you've got more to do and, and more to give. And I just didn't feel like I could quite achieve that. And so I made the decision that I wanted to leave and I'd found myself a job outside. And so I, I took that step. I, I left. And, you know, it was, again, anticlimactic because... Funny story, I actually forgot. I, I put in my discharge paperwork and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, yep, I'm going. And then I sat down, I put in my diary, like, yep, discharge date, all that kind of thing. And then I get to my discharge date. No, actually, I've got a couple of days before that and I got a phone call from someone in defence about sorting out some paperwork. And, and I said, oh, yeah, you know, this is my service number and all that kind of thing. And they, they go, yeah, we're just having some trouble finding you on the system. And I was like, hmm, that's weird. I don't know why. And it turns out I'd got my discharge date wrong by a week. I actually was already out. And I thought, already out. You <laughs> were still going to work. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh, so they're not paying me anymore. Okay, cool. And I say it was a, a soft discharge because I was already on civil schooling and that sort of stuff. So I hadn't been in uniform for a couple of months. And yeah, so it was just a bit like, oh, all right, I'm out. Um, they sent me a letter in the mail and said, thanks very much. It's, it's been good. And then that's it. And then you're not in anymore. But day to day, nothing changed because I was already out and I was already studying full time. So, you know, I'd, just do my thing at home and I'd already started working. So yeah, it was all fine. Yeah. The military can be great like that later on in a career for helping you to transition like that as well. And it sounds like although the job didn't pan out the way you wanted it to, the transition seemed to be pretty smooth. Tell me about Matt Hall racing and Matt's doing really well in the air race this year. Tell me about your role there, how you support him and what that's all about. Yeah, sure thing. Well, I started working with Matt about 18 months ago. So in my previous job uh, with Oz Runways, you know, I came in contact with him because we sponsored him at Oz Runways. And when I was in the Air Force, I'd done a bit of flying with him at Mackle Racing. So in his extra 300, just, you know, spent a bit of my money. I was on a, this credit card where you keep current. I spent a bit of money doing some flying with him because it's good high energy flying to keep your skills up. And uh, he'd said to me back when I was doing that, which was very surprising, he said, hey, you know, you can hire 
my extra if you want to come and do some flying in it that's fine I was a bit like wow that's that's pretty cool didn't expect it so I'd been doing that every now and again going up there and, and doing an hour or two or, you know 20 minutes half an hour of flying because it's an extra they don't fly for that long and then when I was at Oz Runways I started doing a bit more and he'd actually pulled me aside and said hey do you want to come for a fly with me this one day I was there I said Sure. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. Who would want to go for a fly with you? So I went flying with him and we're kind of 20 minutes in and he just said, look, would you like to do some joy flights for me, you know, for the company, come aboard and do that. And that was one of those moments where, you know, it's, it's the equivalent of when you graduate pilot's course kind of thing. You just go, wow, yeah. this guy wants me to be on the team. And, you know, the, the guys who are flying with him are phenomenal. You've got like, you know, guys like Dan O'Donnell and yeah. Paul Simmons and Jason Eastope who are all, you know, very accomplished military fighter pilots and you know then i'm jumping in there and i feel a bit like the odd man out occasionally because you're like oh, okay cool but you know i got the hang of it and got myself in there and did that and i loved doing those flights because you're working with people who are coming in there to get the experience i love it just as much as as anyone does and you can just share this thing with them you like check out this awesome airplane we're all really passionate about it we're super professional and then basically i did that with him for for 12 months and, and got heaps out of it and my previous job was coming to an end and Matt had actually asked me a couple of weeks before that about when, you know, he said, oh, when's your job coming to an end? And I said, oh, it's supposed to be for another year. And then that got brought forward by about nine months. So when that happened, he said, oh, hey, well, do you want to interview for this general manager job I've got going? And I was like, yep. I'm yeah, pretty sure. <laughs> um, so I went in there and look, it wasn't a fait complete. He put me through the ringer in a, in a pretty intensive interview and asked some, you know, some fairly hard questions. You know, nothing like this, obviously, Rob, you've got him. <laughs> But he asked some hard questions and, you know, got my insights on things and, yeah, he's offered me the job. So at the moment, I do a bit of work here and there for him because it, the actual full-time position doesn't start for another couple of months. Yeah, then I also started doing some air show flying with him and uh, Matt and I did a formation display at the Canberra Open Day. Fantastic. I've got to admit, I, I didn't have that on my bucket list because it's not something I would have ever conceived of being able to do. But the moment we landed from that and we'd done this work up and all this kind of stuff, and but the moment I landed from that and... You know, Matt wandered over and he shook my hand and said, you know, great job. I was just concerned going, do I stuff anything up? <laughs> he goes, yeah. you know, great job. That was really well done. That was just one of those moments that's going to live with me. When I was in the Air Force, Matt did some stuff, some consulting work for the Air Force and did this thing called Bright Spots where it was, a, I guess, a psychological human factors type training program for pilots. And I got onto that when I was in Tamworth in 2012. And I absolutely loved it. And I have had so much admiration for the work he does and, and for him. And to somehow find myself working alongside him now and, being a part of that is a little bit surreal and mm -hmm. still coming to grips with the fact that I've probably made my own luck there in a lot of ways, but you just don't expect those kind of things to happen. Well, that's Very wonderful, mate. I'm, I'm so happy for you that it kind of, the Air Force career towards the end there kind of petered out, it kind of faded out, but it's been reignited. And it sounds like your passion for aviation has been reignited there as well, particularly when you get to share it with other people as well. That must be a, a favorite part of the job, taking people out go and tear a hole in the sky and that extra it must be a lot of fun how do you gauge whether or not somebody can actually take that g that you're about to pull and how do you always wondered that about like a an aerobatics joy pilot yeah well the way i approach it is if you keep under 4g most people are going to be okay um we yeah. give them a brief on how to do anti-g straining but not not to the extent you would as a fighter pilot but you know, you know clench the leg muscles and the gut muscles that kind of thing and um, sort of squeeze against the g but what I do is I fly my manoeuvres such that the G peaks at about four and then it's only on for a couple of seconds so that for most people, they're not going to run into the problems with blacking out or graying out. Now, some people, you know, you'll be doing the aerobatics and they'll be like, I want more, I want, you know, I want to <laughs> you know, okay. And then you, so you give them a little bit more, but you still temper it because you know that 
a lay person doesn't have the skill, experience, knowledge, all that kind of stuff to keep themselves safe in that environment. So that's your job as the joy fight pilot. And I guess it's why Matt takes that so seriously with who he has in there and how we execute those missions to make sure that they are very safe. Um, we do often show people like a high G turn, which will go to six or seven G, but it's an instantaneous thing. So you just kind of rack the G on, you're up there for a point, you know, two of a second kind of thing, and then you're easing the G off. For the person in the front, they, they go, wow, that's an enormous amount of G-force. And, and you're like, yeah, it's, it's, it's an enormous amount of G-force. Yeah, that's pretty much the way that we, we temper that so that you don't – because you don't want to black people out. And I've never blacked anyone out, which is good, but I've never had to, I guess, constrain any of the manoeuvres I've done. If you do them in the right way, it's still – very, very safe. Yeah, it's comfortable. I know that every time that I, because I haven't done aerobatics that much, I've done it a little bit, but every time I've come out of a plane, I've got distinct memories of being totally fine during the aerobatics, no problem with G, pulled, I think six, six and a half or something the most I pulled. It's kind of okay, not, not a problem really. But after I get out of the aeroplane and get on the ground because I'm not conditioned to it, it just messes with my vestibular system and my guts for a couple of hours afterwards. And it's like, yeah, I'm fine in a plane when I'm doing it, even if I'm at the controls of it, doing it, it's kind of okay. But when I get on the ground, it's like, man, that takes some conditioning and you'd want to work your way into that if you're going to do that properly for a job or do that for fun, you know? Yeah, and it takes a lot to get conditioned to it because even even the doing it the joy flight stuff once a month, which I was doing initially, I would get back from a day's flying like five or six joy flights in that day and just be wrecked. And yeah. I recently transitioned over to the, the MXSR, which is Matt's old race plane. Yeah, right. You know, claim to fame of that one was it, it's the one that did the water touch and go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've recently started flying that and the conditioning I needed for that one was pretty intense. That thing pulls an enormous amount of G. The G onset rates in it, I think it's around 40 G a second or something if you pull the stick back fully. Amazing. Um, it's incredible. So when I started flying it, Matt's giving me this advice like, hey, man, you know, this thing is really hard to keep the speed under control. You're pretty much going to fly the whole display with a lot of G on. And he's right. Like the display I ended up doing was you're just a six or seven G nearly the whole time. And even the thing is adding energy. Like it's an amazing airplane to go and do a loop and you come out and you're faster than when you went in. Yeah, right. The same entry height. And, you know, you can just easily pull it up to 10 G and it'll just do it. It'll give it to you. And you know, it doesn't even break a sweat kind of thing. And it's great seeing what relatively tuned up race plane is capable of. It's, incredible even compared to the extra it's a massive jump up the thing is it's an animal and conditioning yourself for that i'd go and do heaps of flights where i'm just up there pushing the g because you know normally i don't do more than four or five especially as a tall lanky guy Um, yeah it's harder for you when you're taller yeah yeah, times isn't isn't the greatest so i'm doing like you know four or five g flights and then working up to seven or eight just to try and keep myself in the physiological zone (laughs) while i'm tolerance for it tell me when you fly around in those twitchy little airplanes does it kind of inspire you to have a crack at the red bull air race yourself uh yep. not, sort definitely. of maybe kind of <laughs> yeah yeah definitely look before i even started working for matt that's something that i, I looked at and went I'd, I'd really love to do this the mm-hmm. issue was i hadn't done a whole lot of non-air force aerobatics i've done a lot of aerobatics in the raft and i was a low-level display pilot on the ct4 and stuff so i've done a lot of that but i hadn't done any non-air force stuff so this was really you know kick-started my put me in a position where I can, you know, reasonably try and pursue that. I know it's competitive and I guess the way I'm approaching that is I really want to do it. I'm going to do everything I can to put myself in the position that if the opportunity opens up, I can take it. But I'm also approaching it with a degree of realism going, look, it's hard. And it's not a matter of whether you're good enough or, or that kind of stuff even because Red Bull Air Race is only very small. There's a lot of people who want to do it. So all the things that need to line up to get you into that position, there's a lot. And some of them are outside of your control. So there's nothing you can do about that. Well, that's a fantastic goal to aim at, mate. You know, you've got to have a big goal. You've got to have a big target. You know, you shoot for the moon type thing and you're, you're definitely doing it there. Tell me, you've got a lot going on in your life, mate. What are your daily non-negotiables that keep you sharp and focused and 
keep you bringing your A game every day? Yeah, exercise is a big one. So I like to run a lot. I don't run as much in Canberra as I would like to because it's freezing cold here most of the time. <laughs> but yeah, I like to get out and, and hit you know 5Ks at least three, four times a week. And then nice. occasionally I'll do you know, bigger 10, 15K runs. Running for me just really helps focus the mind. I find if you know you feel like after a few days there's kind of just noise building up. If you go for a run, it just it's weird. It kind of has this effect on you psychologically. Well, I find it does for me, where things just drop away. So that's a huge one. Um, my addiction to coffee is probably a uh, <laughs> that's another one. You know, don't function too well without that these days. But yeah, mostly living fairly healthy. Like I don't drink a lot. Yeah. I used to when I was in the air force. You know, I can say it quite openly. The, the culture in there at the time was very alcohol centric, um, mm-hmm. as you may have experienced when you were there. I stepped out of that in the latter part of my Air Force career and just sort of went, I don't think this is healthy for me. And that's made a huge difference. So now if I enjoy a drink, I genuinely do enjoy it rather than it being a, you know, a huge part of my, my life. And that helps as well with the focus because you know, just making sure that you're drinking water rather than alcohol is, um, or alcoholic beverages is a much better way of you know, keeping yourself on straight level. So yeah, good diet, good exercise, and genuinely doing the stuff that you like is really important too. I'm fortunate that what I do for a living is what I love. So it's very easy to achieve that goal. And, you know, I've gone through years of people saying to me like, oh, you should work less. You're working really hard. And I think, but I like what I'm doing. It's not a chore. I don't get up and go, oh, I've got to go to work again. I don't do jobs where I go, well, I've got to go to work again. I do jobs that I like. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's really, really great advice, mate. I'd echo that loud and clear as well. Exercise on a daily basis. Go easy on the booze, man. It's kind of cooler to be fit and healthy and sharp, not drunk and hungover. And I think you kind of realize that a little bit more as you get older and you move away from the the ADF culture of drinking. That's across all services, including the Navy and the Army as well. Well, Scott, thank you so much for being so giving and sharing your military story there and a little bit beyond there as well. I'd love to revisit it with you and Matt in a couple of months' time towards the end of the Red Bull Air Race season and see where it's all at and see where you settled into that job and where it's all going. Yeah, no problems at all. And hopefully he's uh, got a world championship behind him at that point. And that's Fingers crossed. Fingers yeah. crossed. Well, we're all barracking for him over this side, that's for sure. Tell me, if people want to know more about you or, or connect with you, where can they reach you? Uh, they can reach me through LinkedIn. I'm also obviously available through Mapple Racing. So if you get in contact with Mapple Racing through the website, all that contact details are there. They can, they can get a hold of me through that. They're probably the best ways to reach out. Okay, excellent. I'll make sure all of those links are included in the show notes. And if you haven't already subscribed to the Go All In podcast, please open up your favorite podcasting app and hit that subscribe button. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. And if you don't, leave us a review as well because we always like to improve well that's it for this show thank you very much scott for coming on we look forward to talking again with you soon bye for now mate thanks Robert.